All right, so we are in the book of Galatians, and I'll say just a few words of introduction for those of you that have not been with. Why don't you raise your hands if this is your first, being here for the first time in the Galatians series? Anybody there going to raise their hand? Okay, a few hands going up there. How about on this other side? Okay, so we're in the book of Galatians, and I'm just going to say a very few words of introduction. So the first is, the book of Galatians is the first of Paul's letters. Uh, he wrote it probably in around AD 49, not earlier than probably AD 48, and not later than about AD 50. And the churches to which Paul is writing are churches that are located in what we would call central Turkey. These are churches like Antioch, Lystra, Derby, And the mission of Paul, the missionary journey of Paul to these churches is described in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And so Paul has traveled there, uh, remained for a period of somewhere between 12 and 18 months, and then he has left. Upon Paul's departure, unfortunately, some people, opponents of Paul, adversaries of Paul, have come in behind him and have sought to undermine his ministry, his apostolic um, legitimacy. And so Paul is writing into a situation with a kind of frantic, almost panicky urgency. And we find Paul here at his most primitive, at his most raw. And this is, again, the first of Paul's letters. He will become um, more refined in his writing and in his sort of uh, larger treatment of theology. But here in Galatians, we have an urgent, very concerned Pastor Paul writing back into small house churches, churches probably about the size of the Castle Rock Church plant, that have had some adversaries of Paul come in behind him and, and try to undermine, again, his ministry, his teaching, even his apostleship. And so in chapters one, two, and three, we have seen Paul writing back into that situation. And in as much as it's possible, we've been trying to, as we listen in to the phone conversation, because of course, we only have one side of the letter. We don't have you know, any evidence of, of what was actually happening in Galatia in terms of a letter from them to Paul, or certainly no any kind of video evidence or anything of that nature. But but what we're trying to do is we have one side of the phone conversation, right? I've got my phone here and we're trying to figure out and put the pieces together based on what Paul writes in Galatians and also what we can surmise from the larger um, context of the New Testament and of the book of Acts, especially Acts 13 and 14 and 15 that we mentioned. So that's what we're doing here. And so far we've, we've put together, I think, a, a pretty compelling case as to what's going on in Galatia how Paul is responding to it. And what we're going to find in Galatians chapter four is that Paul is going to pick up in the very same place that he left off in, in, let me just click over here. Give me two seconds. I clicked the wrong button. Here we go. Paul is going to pick up in the very same place that he did when he, so sorry, I'm just, my computer's making all kinds of noise. Uh, when he left off in Galatians chapter three, so let's just remind ourselves of where we've come from in Galatians 3. So if you've got your Bible there, you can look down at Galatians chapter 3. And uh, Paul says, as sort of the climax of his argument there in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in the Messiah Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Amen. Verse 28, Paul then says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in the Messiah, Jesus. 
And then verse 29, what gives Paul the right, the prerogative to just start erasing these lines of demarcation and distinction and social hierarchy? Well, based on the great promise that God had made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapters 12 and 15 and beyond, he says, if you are the Messiahs, then you are Abraham's family, right? Remember last week, we talked about the Greek word sperma. We, you are Abraham's family, his sperma. Some translations say seed, and you are heirs according to the promise. What promise? Well, the promise that God would put the world back together through the promise that he was making to Abraham and to his descendants. Now, at the end of Galatians chapter three, beginning in verse 26, the section that we've just read, this argument for Paul, beginning in Galatians chapter four, is an uninterrupted single argument all the way down to, to verse seven, okay? So what we just read is an uninterrupted sort of pericope or segment all the way down to Galatians chapter four, verses one to seven. And I wanna introduce this section that we're in now by telling you about an article that I literally just read yesterday. In fact, it was, it was published yesterday in The Hill, uh, the website, The Hill. And I'm just going to read you the title of the article here, written by Jenna Romaine, June 4th, 2021. Here's the title of the article. It says, Woman Dies Homeless, Unaware of an $884,000 Inheritance. And then a quotation, She Needed Help in the worst way. Let me just read you a little bit of the article here. It says, an Oregon woman died homeless last year, unaware that she had an unclaimed $884,447 inheritance. Kathy Boone died in January, 2020 in a warming shelter in Astoria, Oregon. She had been struggling with mental health issues and drug abuse. When her mother died in 2016, she left Boone the substantial inheritance, but no one was able to locate her. It just didn't make any sense to me, said her father, Jack, uh, Spithal, that money just sitting there and she needed help in the worst way. After her family took out newspaper ads and enlisted the help of a private investigator to no avail, the money was eventually transferred to the Department of State Lands where it remains today unclaimed. What a story, right? This is the sort of classic story that you often hear about the the you know, wealthy uncle or relative that has passed away and left a bunch of money, in this case, nearly a million dollars. And uh, this dear lady, what was her name? Kathy, is that right? Let me just go back and check. I wanna make sure I get her name right. Kathy, Kathy Boone. This dear lady had all of this money that was hers. It belonged to her. It was given to her by her mother and yet it remained unclaimed. What we find in Galatians chapter four is a very similar kind of a situation. Paul is writing about the heirs, right? Or those that have inherited something. And Paul is concerned that people have inherited something far more valuable than just a million dollars, right? Which will pass away and you will pass away. He says something of inestimable, incalculable value has been inherited by you, you need to now claim that inheritance. And the incredible thing about this chapter is that we have this, this language through the whole chapter that really calls to mind. And there's not a doubt in my mind that Paul is thinking about the Exodus, right? Exodus is never fall far from Paul's frame of reference. And here in Galatians chapter four, Exodus and Passover are absolutely central to this whole chapter. So be on the lookout for words like, slave, bondage, even free or free woman, 
Okay, and notice the importance of the word heir. Just look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 again, the last verse of Galatians 3. What does it say? If you are Christ, if you are the Messiah, then you are Abraham's family and you are heirs or inheritors according to the promise. There's a, a large sum of money that has been bequeathed to you, that has been given to you, that has been left to you, except it's something, again, far more important and valuable than mere money. Now, just jump down briefly and look at verse 7 of Galatians 4. So Galatians 4, verse 7, and notice he says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, you are a son. And if you are a son or a daughter, then you are an heir of God through Christ. And so Paul has this idea in mind of the reception of an inheritance. Something has been given to us. Something has been gifted to us. Something has been left to us. And Paul's concern is that the churches in Galatia are not going to claim like Kathy Boone. She had this enormous inheritance sitting there and she needed it in the worst way. And yet she never claimed it. She never received it. That's Paul's concern here in Galatians chapter one. And the whole, the whole chapter is steeped in this language of Exodus and Passover and slavery and bondage and freedom. You're going to absolutely love it. Well, let's just read through the first little bit here, Galatians chapter four, verses one to seven, and then we'll go back through with a fine tooth comb. One more word of, of introduction. This chapter is divided up really into three parts, and it goes roughly like this. Paul's going to talk about theology in the first bit, right? Religious teaching and instruction. He then in the middle is going to give an impassioned, personal, pastoral appeal, and then he will in the third part return to another educational or theological lesson. So sort of theology, appeal, theology. So let's start with this, this opening section here about um, some really fascinating ideas with regards to the Exodus and the Passover. Okay, verse one, Galatians chapter four, verse one. Here we go. Paul says, now I say that an heir, ah, there's our word. Remember, this is one uninterrupted line of reasoning from Galatians 3, 26, all the way through. Paul says, I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave though he is the master of all. Paul is continuing with the same line of reasoning that we had back in Galatians chapter three of the babysitter, right? The tutor, the mistress, the one who teaches the child, tutors the child, educates the child to get them to maturity, right? Up through the age of about 12 or 13 until the child in Paul's time became a fully fledged adult, you were under tutors and you were under guardians. You were under this babysitter, and so Paul here says that the heir, just like the slave, when they're young and uninitiated and not yet mature, they are under a tutor or a guardian. Verse two, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Okay, now Paul is going to run with this idea of an appointed time, that something's going to happen according to a schedule, according to a timetable. Now we're in verse three. Paul says, even so, or another way to translate that is in the same way, or likewise, just like that, even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, I'm not going to spend a long time on this phrase, the elements of the world, only to say that Paul does something here. We're going to sort of deal with Galatians 4 at, at this level. We're going to go into it, but there is a level of depth below this that it's probably a little tricky to go into in a church setting and especially over an online situation like this. I'm only going to say that when Paul here references the elements of the world or some translations say the elemental spirits of the world, 
Paul is going to do a really interesting thing where he's going to compare the law that was given to Israel at Sinai to a sort of guardian or uh, an angel, like these guardian deities that the Israelites believed every area, every people had their sort of patron deity, right? Their guardian deity that, that protected them and watched over them and, and differentiated between them and their neighbors, protected them from their enemies, et cetera, et cetera. And Paul is going to use both the pagan peoples that are converts to, to Christianity, to belief in the Messiah, but also Judaism itself. He's going to say that Torah, that is to say the law given by God to Israel at Sinai, had the same kind of function. It, it separated Israel off and it protected them. It guarded them. It kept them protected from their enemies and separated from their neighbors. Okay, And so, so Paul here is doing something that's frankly a little risky. He is comparing Torah given by God at Sinai to Moses to the same kind of role that some of these patron deities or tutelary deities had in the surrounding nations. Okay, so it's a little tricky, but just come with me on the journey because you don't have to understand all of that to get Paul's larger point. Now, uh, verse four, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law or born under Torah on schedule, on time, at just the right time, in the fullness of time, at just the right moment, God sends his son, Jesus the Messiah, who was fully Jewish, born under the law. He was fully human, born of a woman. To what ends, right? For what purpose? Verse five, to redeem those who were under the law or under Torah, right? Under Torah in terms of its sort of function as a guardian and a protector, but also under the condemnation of Torah because all have in their own way, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To redeem those who are under the Torah that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, this is a very important idea. Paul has been talking about the idea of sonship all the way back in Galatians, that, that we are not servants, we are not slaves, we are the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now, that language is itself Exodus language. You might just want to write this down if you're taking notes. But remember that when God appeared to Moses, in the burning bush, back in Exodus chapter three, one of the things that God said to Moses, and I'm quoting now from Exodus chapter four, verses 22 and 23, listen to this, because Moses says, hey, Pharaoh's not gonna listen to me. Pharaoh's not gonna believe me. What should I say to Pharaoh? And this is where God famously says, tell him I am that I am has sent you. And then in Exodus four, he says this in verses 22 and 23, then say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn son, and as I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. Oh, this is absolutely essential, and this is in Paul's mind. When Paul is here writing over and over again, you're not slaves, you're not servants, you're sons, this is the language of Exodus. All of this is straight out of Exodus 3 and 4 and beyond, where God appears to Moses and says, Moses, go talk to Pharaoh and say, hey, that's not just a servant. That's not just a slave. That's my firstborn. That's my son, the descendants of Abraham, those to whom the promise had been made, God views as his very child, as his son. And so that's the language. Now, just one more word on that. Remember that when God had originally made his promise back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, you may not be aware of this, but all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, when 
Abraham had this deep sleep come upon him and God made this promise to him and there was this incredible covenant ceremony. Abraham had a tremendous nightmare or a, a terrible dream. And in that dream, God says this to him. And I'm quoting now from Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. God says, know this for, sh for sure or certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Ah, so all the way back in the initial Abrahamic promise, that embryonic promise, God had already said, this promise is not going to receive immediate fulfillment. Israel, yes, they are, or I should say, Abraham, your descendants, you and your descendants are my promised people. I am entering into a covenant with you, but this is not going to be fulfilled instantly. Your descendants, your sons, 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 and daughters, 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 daughters will go into a foreign land and they will remain there for 400 years, at which point I will call them out. Well, that's exactly what we just read in Exodus chapter four, where God says through Moses to Pharaoh, let my son go. My son, my child, my firstborn. Ah, so now with that language in mind, go back and just, let's just read Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4 again. Just read it again. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that's Jesus, born a woman, born under the law, to redeem or to rescue those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's Exodus language. Verse 6. And because you are sons, notice it doesn't say you'll become sons. If you really get your act together, maybe you can be God's sons and daughters. Maybe you could be his children. Notice what Paul says, because you are sons. If you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible, that should definitely be underlined because you are sons, present tense. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out Abba, which is the Aramaic, like dad, daddy, papa, father, right? It's the language of a child saying, dad, you know, when the dad comes home and the child runs out, says, daddy, so God has sent forth his spirit so that you will know in your innermost heart, in your innermost soul, you are God's daughter, you are God's son. And then now finally, verse seven, this is the last verse in this section. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. That's the language of Exodus. You're no longer slaves. But what are you? You are a son. And if you are a son, then you are, Paul picks this language back up again. You are an heir of God through Christ. You have an inheritance, an incredible inheritance. Now, I can't hear you, but I'm going to ask you this question anyway, and you can tell me if you get the right answer. <laughs> Somebody tell me if you get the right answer. What was Israel's inheritance? What was the thing that God gave to them that they were to inherit? Does anybody, I can't hear you, but I trust that somebody is going to say, if you said promised land, raise your hand. Okay, a couple of you said promised land. Okay, good. So this is the very point that Paul is driving at. That, that God had an inheritance for the descendants of Abraham. It was land, right? Land and descendants. Remember, God has said, you'll, you'll have descendants like the stars of the sky. You'll have descendants like the sand of the seashore. 
And so the, the inheritance was by promise, land and descendants, land and descendants. Now, just a couple more little points here before we go any further. Did you notice, and you might not have, that this whole passage from Galatians 4, 1 to 7 is steeped in what we today would call Trinitarian theology. Did you notice how the Trinity is expressly communicated here? Just look at verse 4. It says, God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Well, we know, and Paul certainly believes, that Jesus himself is God. Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh. He came down, he lived, he died, he was buried, he resurrected and ascended. And then notice this, as if that's not enough, look at verse six. God has sent forth, look at this, the spirit of his son. So in this passage, Galatians 4, 1 to 7, we plainly see God the Father, we plainly see God the Son, and we see the Spirit. And so Paul never uses the word Trinity as such, and it, it would be some time in church history before that word would be coined, but the idea that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is central even in Paul's very first letter that he ever wrote. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Now, if we're going to summarize this whole passage here, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, we would say it like this. God is our Father, or let's be even more um, cute. Let's be even more biblically accurate. God is our dad, our daddy, and he has led us to freedom in and through the Messiah, Jesus, so that we can inherit the promise of which the promised land was only a shadow, okay? Now, one last point here about Galatians 4. Look at verse 7 again. Actually, look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says, and because you are sons. Now, this is not detectable in the English, but the, the word you there is the plural you in Greek, okay? And that's actually detectable because he says sons in the plural. So in the Greek language, you have a, you have a you that's plural, and you have a you that's singular. In verse six, Paul is writing in the plural, to you all, we could say it like that. So verse six, because you all are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into all of your hearts, there's the plural, crying out, Abba, Father. But in verse seven, he switches to the singular, purposefully, pastorally, he switches to the singular to make the personal appeal to the individual reader or listener that was receiving this letter. Look at verse seven. Therefore, you, singular, you as an individual, you as a person, Paul knew the names of the people to whom he was writing, of course. You, he says to Alma. You, he says to Jose. You, he says to Anne. You, he says to Richard. To you. Therefore, you, singular, are no longer a slave, but a son and if a son, then an heir of God through the Messiah. I want you to turn to the person sitting right next to you and say, you are, if it's son, if it's a man, say a man. And if it's a woman, say a daughter. You are a daughter. Turn to the person now. You say, you're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. Right? That's what Paul was doing there. Everybody to whom Paul wrote would have immediately detected, hey, he has switched from the plural to the singular. He is now speaking to me, me as an individual. I am God's son, right? 
I am. Now you just said it to the person next to you. Try saying this, say this out loud with me, if you would, I am God's son, or in your case, if you're a woman daughter, let's say that together. I am God's son. One more time. I am God's son. Beautiful. That's what Paul is saying. Now, that's sort of verses one to seven. Then there's a a short little section here, verses eight to 10, that are a little tricky, but we'll just spend a moment on them, just kind of quickly on eight to 10 or 11. Okay, here we go. It says, then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods, right? Idols, these guardian deities, these patron deities of the ancient world, right? The ancient idolatrous world. Verse nine, but now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? Remember I told you earlier back in verse three that you have this idea of the elements of the world. This is a little tricky and I'm not gonna go into the details here, but Paul is saying you're turning back to what you formerly believed and you formerly understood. How is it that you turn back to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. Okay, now watch this. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored over you in vain. Okay, just, I'm only gonna say one little thing about verses eight to 11. It is a fairly important passage in Paul's line of reasoning, but we can get the central idea by relating this again to the Exodus. Now, I can't hear you, but if I was there, I would ask you this question and I want you to think about the question. What happened not long after Israel was led by the mighty hand of God out of Egypt through the Red Sea on their way to Sinai? It's described in Exodus 14 and 15. I wonder if anybody there knows something happened. Hmm. Now, I'm going to tell you what the answer is, and I want you to raise your hand if you knew the answer. What they wanted to do was turn around and go back. Some of them said, hey, this is, we'd rather have the, you know, the old saying, the devil that we know is better than the devil that we don't. And rather than chasing this wild dream out into the future, out into the wilderness, out into the unknown, we want to go back. Anybody raise your hand if if you knew that was the answer? Looking, okay. Nobody there. Anybody over here got the answer? Okay, nobody gave the answer. Well, this is the very thing, at least nobody that I can see. This is the very thing that Paul is describing here. Paul is continuing to use the language of Exodus. And he's saying, I came, I preached. He's already said this back in Galatians chapter three and two. When I preached, you came to repentance. Jesus was crucified before your very eyes. You saw it by the spirit. And now, now he says, you want to go back as if Messiah had not come. Many in the Exodus wanted to return to Egypt rather than push forward into the world of freedom and the world of promise that was before them. Now, Paul makes this point, and if you get it, you get it, and if you don't, that's okay. Torah, the law given by God to the Israelites at Sinai, Torah had a purpose, but this is what Paul is saying to the Galatians. If you're going to return to Torah, like these agitators that have come in behind me that are trying to encourage you to do, if you're going to return to Torah as if the Messiah has not come, Paul says that's tantamount to the rebellion of Israel and desiring to go back to Israel, go back to Egypt as if the Passover and the Exodus had not happened. Now, 
That's an amazing point. That's, that's the point he's making here. He's like, the rebellion of Israel in wanting to go back is basically like what you're doing. You want to turn, a ba- turn around and go back to Egypt, go back to bondage, go back to rebellion as if Messiah hasn't come, as if Passover hasn't occurred, as if we're not now living in the new Exodus. And that's a very important idea. Paul is not only describing the historical Exodus here, he's describing the current Exodus, that we have a new Joshua, Yeshua, a new Yeshua figure who is leading us in to the promised land, not the regional promised land that, you know, Abraham left Mesopotamia to go and inhabit, but the whole earth and the promise of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which Paul will return to, which Paul will get to in just a second. Listen to this incredible quotation from N.T. Wright, a well-known New Testament theologian speaking about this very idea. He says, Paul is quite clear that the Jewish law was given by God with a purpose in his overall plan. Torah has a purpose. He talked about this in Galatians 3. But now that plan has been fulfilled and anyone who goes back to the earlier stage is treating the law, Torah, as though it were something independent that could stand for all time, treating it, in other words, says N.T. Wright, as a God itself. Treating Torah, treating the law as if it was God, rather than a thing that God was using to get them to himself. Very important. How many of us have sung? Sing your, raise your hands if you've ever sung this song. Uh, how does it go? How does it go? Uh, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me. And what do we say in that song? We say, no turning back, no turning back. That's what Paul's writing about here. He's saying this is not a time to be turning around and going back into bondage, right? So he's using the Old Testament uh, to make his point here about sonship, about freedom, about an inheritance. The promised land that was offered to Abraham's descendants, Israel, he says is only a shadow of the promised land and the larger promise of eternal life and of the new heaven and the new earth that God has in store for us. Okay, so that gets us up through verse 12. Now, I'm going to just kind of go through verses 12 to 20 kind of quickly because Paul here switches from theology and teaching, a didactic sort of section into just a personal appeal. And again, this is Paul frustrated. This is Paul urgent. This is Paul writing with all of his pastoral passion on full display. And as a pastor myself, I can relate to Paul's feelings here. And if you're a parent at all, I'm sure that you'll be able to relate to Paul's sense here when you just sometimes have to look your son, look your daughter in the eye and say, hey, I just want to talk to you now, just man to man. You know, I just want to talk to you woman to woman. I just need to talk to you and try and arrest your attention from a heart level, not just an educational level, not just a logical level. I just want to talk to you. And so I think you'd be able to follow Paul's reasoning here. He immediately switches into sort of pastoral mode or fatherly mode. And listen to how he writes beginning in verse 11. He says, I am afraid for you, right? Notice he's not, he's not, this isn't the language of teaching now. This is the language of appeal. This is the language of pastoral uh, pleading. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored over you in vain, brothers and sisters, I plead with you, become like me, for I became like you. 
you have not injured me at all. I'm not upset. I'm not angry here. You haven't injured me at all. Verse 13, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And there's been a lot of speculation over the years as to what the physical infirmity is that Paul refers to here. Christian tradition has historically held that it's Paul's eyesight, that ever since his road to Damascus encounter with the risen Christ, that his eyes were not fully functional, that he was partially blind or significantly blind. And so Paul says, look, I'm not, you know, I know you, you know me, I've eaten in your homes, I've lived in your communities. You saw me in all of my blindness. Remember back to John chapter nine, when the disciples found a man that was blind, they said to Jesus, hey, why is this guy blind? Because he sinned or because his, his parents sinned? The idea that, that disease and blindness in particular was a curse from God is kind of a tricky obstacle to navigate when you're supposed to be God's apostle. God sent one and you're here to tell about the goodness of God and the power of God and the, the kingdom of God and of his Messiah. And yet you yourself are blind. And yet Paul's personality and his preaching was so powerful that people got over that obstacle. And so Paul says, in verse 13, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you when I first visited you. Verse 14, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you didn't despise or reject. No, you received me as an angel. In fact, you received me like you would have received Jesus. He's giving them a giant compliment here. He's switched over into pastoral mode. Verse 15, what then was a, the blessing that you enjoyed? I, I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me, right? This is a pretty strong indicator that why would Paul be requesting other people's eyes or saying that you could have given your eyes to me if you, if you, you would have, if you could have, if you didn't have a problem with his eyes, it all kinds of, it all kind of adds up. Incidentally, at the very end of Galatians chapter six, at the very end of Galatians chapter six, verse 11, Paul says, look at how I've written to you in large letters with my own hands which means that at the end, rather than using a scribe, it looks like Paul took a large section of the letter that was being written and he wrote his own name, Paul. But because he was visually impaired, he had to write in very large letters. So there is a case to be made here, not an absolutely definitive case, but I would say a strongly suggestive case that Paul's infirmity was his eyes, his blindness. And again, by ancient standards, this would have been regarded as, whoa, 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 whoa. how can you be blind? And yet God's messenger, God's and Paul says, you didn't treat me like that, though. You received me. You loved me. And I taught you and I ate in your homes and I slept in your house. And come on, you know me. I know you. So he's moved off. He's, he's not teacherly here. He's, he's pastoral. He's fatherly. He's not, he's not in a classroom setting now. He's in their home, looking them in the eye, pleading with them not to go back to Egypt, not to turn around. Okay. Uh, verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth, the truth about Messiah, the truth about yourselves, the truth about these agitators that have come in after me? Verse 17, these people zealously court you, but for no good. I, I know what they're up to. It's not good. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. Now, just a brief word on that, very brief. When he uses the word exclude here, it's an important word because this is the very thing that Paul described back in Galatians 2, where Peter and Barnabas and the others, when the Jews separated from the Gentiles, there in Antioch, Paul tells the story, they were excluding. So what they were basically communicating is, is that there were two tiers of access to God. There was the inner tier, which was either Jews or those that became Jews. They assimilated to Judaism through 
circumcision, late life circumcision. They were basically proselytes. So those are the inner circle, what we might call the cool kids table. And then there was the outer circle. And Paul's saying, look, trust me on this. They're not trying to get you in. I'm trying to get you in. I'm trying to get you into Christ. I'm trying to get you into the Messiah. I'm trying to get you all at the same table. He says, but these guys, they're trying to make two tables. They want to include and exclude. Okay, look at it again. Um, Verse 17, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them, that you can be on fire, but on fire for the wrong thing, on fire for Torah, on fire for going back into the past when the Messiah, the new Joshua, is leading us boldly into the future. Verse 18, it is good to be zealous, he says, in a good thing all the time, sure. And not only when I am present with you, oh, my little children, listen to the language here. This is the language of fatherly concern and care and urgency for whom I labor in birth. I mean, that's a bold move as a man to start using pregnancy and birthing analogies, right? He's like, I've given birth to you. And all the ladies in the congregation are like, ah, no, no, actually not. But anyway, you get the idea. He says, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed within you. Verse 20, I wish I could be with you and change my tone, but I have doubts. He said, I want to be with you. I just want to look you in the eye and hold your hand and hug you and teach you. But I have to write this strong letter because these agitators have come in and they're zealous, but they're not zealous for inclusion. They're zealous for exclusion. They're trying to make a cool kids table and an everybody else table. But Paul has been saying from the beginning, there's only one table, one table that gets us access to the family of God, to the community of God. And that's the table of the Messiah. Jews get access by Messiah. Gentiles get access by Messiah. Okay, that's his sort of pastoral. Then he comes into our final section here. Hopefully you guys followed that all. It's, it's actually a pretty easy section. And then we'll just close on this, verses 21 to 31. Paul goes back to theology. He puts on his teacher's hat again. And Paul basically says here, you get the sense, again, we're listening in to the phone conversation, right? So we're trying to figure out We know what Paul says because we have it here in Galatians, but what was being said by the agitators? What was being said on the other end of the line? And the answer appears to be that they were using the Old Testament and they were using, I just spilled some water. (laughs) They were using the Old Testament and they were using the Torah and the history of Israel to basically say, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Paul's all washed up. Paul's got a screw loose. And so Paul says, okay, You want to talk about Abraham? Good. You want to talk about Exodus? Good. You want to talk about Moses? You want to talk about Torah? I'm willing to go to the mat. You want to get in that boxing ring? I will show you that I know the Old Testament better than the people who were zealously courting you for the purposes of exclusion. I'll show you that I know I got my chops, right? I've practiced my scales and my chops. I can do the Old Testament as good or better than anybody. And that's what he does here. And he does it in a very creative way. He actually turns to one of the darkest stories in the book of Genesis, which is the story of Hagar and the birth of Ishmael. And the reason this is a dark story is it is, and this is the short version, Abraham trying to do for God what God said he would do for Abraham. That's the short version, right? God said, you're going to have a child. Sarah's going to give, you know, Sarah's going to bear a child and And it wasn't happening and it was taking a long time. And this is all described in the book of Genesis. And then finally, upon Sarah's initiation, 
And that's a whole other story that I won't go into here. It was not Abraham's idea. It was Sarah's idea. She comes to Abraham and says, I got this great idea. We're going to do a science experiment. I think you're barren. You think I'm barren. So how about if you lay with my maidservant, Hagar, and this science experiment, if Sarah is correct in her thinking, is basically going to prove that it's not Sarah that's barren. It's Abraham that's too old to deliver the goods. The problem is, is that this plan tragically backfires and Hagar gets pregnant. Well, as soon as Hagar gets pregnant, Sarah hates her and she hates Sarah because Sarah's plan to show that it was actually Abraham that couldn't deliver the goods has now been shown that she is the one that's barren. And in the ancient world, to be a barren woman was a significant source of shame and sadness and also a family insecurity, right? Because you needed children and children's children in order to continue your line and to continue your family. And so the whole thing turns into a giant mess that's described in Genesis 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Okay, what Paul does is incredible and it's creative and it's poetic and it's bold. He takes that story and he says, okay, let's do a little wrestling about the Old Testament. I'm willing to take my opponents down to the mat. They want to talk about Abraham? Let's talk about Abraham. They want to talk about Exodus? Let's talk about Exodus. They want to talk about Sinai? Let's talk about Sinai. They want to talk about Torah? Let's talk about Torah. And what Paul does is a stroke of poetic, pastoral, creative genius. Okay, here it is. Verse 21, Paul says, tell me, you who desire to be under Torah, do you not hear Torah? Remember, Paul has already said back in Galatians 3 that if you want to keep Torah, you can't just keep part of it. You can't keep most of it. You can't keep 90 or 99% of it. You have to keep all of it, all of it, every bit of it, or you're a breaker of Torah, right? So he says, okay, those of you that want to be under Torah, do you not hear what Torah says? Verse 22, for it is written, Abraham had two sons, the one by a slave girl or a bondwoman, and the other by a free woman, namely his wife. Notice we're back to the language of freedom, bondage, slave. This is the language of Exodus. Paul has never left the idea of Exodus from the beginning of this chapter. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear what the law says? For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave girl and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the slave girl was born according to the flesh, i.e. it was Sarah's ingenuity and Abraham's, it wasn't really his idea, but it was their ingenuity, their plan to do for God what God said he would do for them. And he says, that's of the flesh. But the one that was born of the free woman, Sarah, Itzak, which means laughter because they laughed at God. So that, that's the son of promise. God made a promise, and it wasn't Abraham keeping a promise to God. It was God keeping a promise to Abraham and his descendants. Write this down if you're taking notes. This one idea is so simple, and this is basically what Paul says here. The gospel is not about the promises that we make to God. The gospel is about the promises that God makes and keeps to us. That's the punchline of the whole Hagar and Sarah story. The gospel is not about the promises that we make to God. It's about the promise that God makes and keeps to us, right? So Abraham and Sarah tried to do for God what God said he would do for them. And Paul makes this incredible point. He says, well, one was a slave girl and the other was a free woman. She was the wife of Abraham, verse 24. And he says, this is like a symbol. Ah, so creative. This is like a symbol for these are like the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, and what Paul does here is very brave, 
which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. What? Yes, Paul just said that. He just said that if now, now you might be thinking, whoa, 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 but we're Seventh-day Adventists. We keep the law. The law is great. It's wonderful. It's good. Yes, it is. And remember this, the law was given to a free people. They had already been delivered from Egypt. The Passover had already occurred. The blood of the lamb had already been spilt. I mean, what are the very first words of Exodus chapter 20? I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Then it says, you will have no other gods before me. So yes, the law is a wonderful and great and good thing. If we relate to it as free people, if we relate to it as free people, the law was given to a free and liberated people, but the law can be bondage. Watch this. If we say, I want to turn around and go back to the law, go back to Torah by implication, go back to Egypt as if Passover hasn't occurred. And that's the difference. If you try to go back to Egypt as if there had been no Passover, well, you're going back into bondage. And if you try to go back to the law, back to the Ten Commandments, back to Torah, as if Messiah hasn't come, you're just going back into bondage. What a stroke of creative brilliance that Paul does here to compare going back to Sinai, which was actually, again, given to a free people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You're free. But he says, if, if you try to turn around now as if Passover hasn't happened, as if, as if the Exodus hasn't happened, as if the Red Sea hasn't happened, you're just going back into bondage. And he says, these people are trying to get you to go back to Torah as if Jesus hasn't come, as if the Messiah hasn't come. He's like, that's bondage. Incredible. Verse 24, well, let's just read that. For these are like a symbol. These are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. That's Hagar. Verse 25, for Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem that now is and is in bondage with her children. When Paul says Jerusalem that now is, this is fascinating. Because remember, we're almost done here, but just hang on for the last few minutes. Remember what happened when all of the Jews and the Gentiles were mingling together in Antioch? And these heavy sevies, right? The, 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 the Jewish leaders came from where? It says they came from James. They came from Jerusalem. And Paul says that whole idea of, oh, we take our orders from Jerusalem. We come from those that are in the know. Jerusalem, God's city, the city of peace where the temple is. Paul says, oh, you want to talk about Jerusalem? I'm going to talk about the new Jerusalem the Jerusalem that's above, the better Jerusalem. Incredibly, fully pulls rank here. Look at it again. He says, the Jerusalem that now is, in verse 25, is in bondage with all of our kids. They've gone back into Torah, back into Egypt, as if, as if the Passover hasn't occurred. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem that is above is, this is the key word. He doesn't say the Jerusalem that is above is holy. He doesn't say the Jerusalem that is above is is perfect. Of course, it is those things. But what is Paul talking about here? It's all Exodus. He says the Jerusalem that is above is free. It's free. And she is the mother. Now, notice what Paul does here of us, inclusive, purposefully inclusive, right? He's already said back in verse six, you are sons because you are sons. And he says, here's the mother of us all. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 54. Rejoice, O barren, and you who did not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. 
for the desolate has many more children than she who has had a husband. Well, that's obviously a reference to Sarah. She was desolate. It didn't look like she was going to give birth, but she did. She did. And she had lots and lots and lots of children and her children had children and children's 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 children. Right. And he's like, don't talk to me about the Jerusalem that now is talk to me about the Jerusalem that is above. The Jerusalem that is above is free living in the full light of the incarnation of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. We're on a roll now. Verse 28. Now we, you should definitely be underlining that word. We there that's, that's, that's incorporative. That's inclusive, right? Where the, the agitators that Paul was warning against were trying to exclude. Paul is doing his very best here to what? Include we, us, our. Now we, brothers, just like Isaac, are children of the promise. And not just the promise of a piece of real estate, you know, to the west of Mesopotamia out of which Abraham came. No, we're inheritors of this whole big thing that God is doing in the world. Verse 29, but as he who was born according to the flesh, that's, that's a reference to Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that's Isaac. He said, it's just like that today. Wow, what a stroke of creative, pastoral, poetic brilliance to go extract this narrative from Genesis 16 to 21 and use it to apply to the situation here in Galatia. Man, Paul's like, you want to talk about Exodus? Let's talk about Exodus. You want to talk about Genesis? Let's talk about Genesis. You want to talk about Abraham and the law? Let's talk about Abraham and the law. He takes them to the mat, gets them in a headlock and uses their own arguments against them. Verse 30, or excuse me, verse 29. But as he, oh no, we already read verse 29, didn't we? Yeah, verse 30. Nevertheless, what does scripture say? And this is where Paul goes fully bold here. What does the text say? And he goes back to the story in Genesis. Cast out the bondwoman. Ah, oh no. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir. There's our word again. Heir, inheritance. Just like Kathy Boone that we read about there, who, who unfortunately died in a warming shelter in Oregon, who had almost a million dollars in the bank. It just needed to be claimed. It just needed to be accessed. But she was living in bondage. She was living in ignorance, right? He says, you got to cast out these agitators. These people are trying to bring you back into Egypt. They're trying to take you back to Sinai as if Passover hasn't happened and Messiah hasn't come. No, kick them out. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't let them into your homes. Don't let them into your churches. Don't let them into to your communities. They are trying to drag you back into the world as if Jesus hasn't arrived, as if Messiah hasn't come. What does scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman will not be heir with the son of the free woman. Verse 31. So then, brothers and sisters, we, we, collectively inclusive, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. What a chapter. What a chapter. Now, let's just summarize briefly what this chapter says to you and what this chapter says to me, okay? We can just summarize it because it's so easily applicable. First of all, we can just say this. God invites us to be free. Can somebody say amen? I can't hear you saying amen, but I hope you're saying amen. Say amen. Raise your hand if you're saying amen. You, God invites us to be free and to go forward, not backward. Raise your hand if you want to say, by the grace of God, I want to go forward, not backward. I'm going forward, not backward. God is leading me. The new Joshua, the new Yeshua is leading me forward. God is, invites us to be free and to go forward 
in faith and in trust of God's Messiah, Jesus, the new Yeshua. This is the new exodus, the new out, right? Exodus comes from the ek, out, exit. And we are God's liberated people on our way to the true land of promise. We are on our way. We are free people. In fact, just briefly look, just very briefly. We'll come back to this when we do Galatians 5. But just look at Galatians 5.1. Just look at it. And I'll quote it to you in a modern translation. It says, brethren, uh, actually it says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. In other words, Christ has set you free so you can be free. What did Jesus himself say? If the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. All right, well, that's Galatians chapter four. You are God's daughter. You are God's son. The Messiah has made this possible. Do not turn around. Do not go back. Do not try to live your life as if Messiah hasn't come. No, you are an heir. You are a descendant of Abraham. You are a member of his family. And there are greater things ahead of us than what lay behind us. God is leading us forward into freedom, into joy, into happiness, and ultimately into eternal life with him in the new heaven and the new earth. And I want to be one of those people that's marching forward, not turning around and going backward into the world as if Passover hasn't happened, as if Exodus hasn't happened, as if Messiah hasn't come and lived and died and been raised and ascended to heaven. That's the good news, and it's great good news that we can all lay hold on today. And uh, I want to thank you all for listening, and I can't wait to get in Galatians, into Galatians chapter 5, because in Galatians 5, we're going to learn how is it that we live like free people? How do we do that? All right, let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, what an incredible chapter and what a blessing it's been here to even be sitting here in Sonora, but still communicating with my people uh, my flock, my church, my home church and community all the way back in Colorado. Uh, Father, we love you. Help us today to live as free people, not in bondage, not turning around to go back to the things that we've left, but pressing forward. Father, we might fail, we might fall, we might make mistakes, but we can still get up, trust in the righteousness of Christ and press forward. And that's what we choose to do right now in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, amen.